Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about my book, White Picket Fences, and today I get to talk about privilege and blessing and vulnerability and authority and human flourishing. And I get to do that with my friend and the prolific author, speaker, and teacher, Andy Crouch. If you're not familiar with Andy, I think you're in for a treat. If you've heard Andy speak before or you have uh, read some of his books, this really is an opportunity to go deeper and explore more. And I will say, especially on this day, as we enter the end of a tumultuous national election season, I'm really excited for you to be able to listen to this conversation. Andy and I do talk about the election, and we talk about the role politics plays in human flourishing, even though we don't know how this election is going to turn out. I'm excited about where this conversation lands because I believe it's highly relevant to our current moment and yet also timeless because it considers always what does it mean to be a human being who is willing to take risks in love and for love. I got so much out of this. I'm actually going to listen to this conversation multiple times again for my own benefit because there was so much wisdom in it. So I'm thrilled to share it with you today. Andy Crouch, I am so glad that you are here with me and with us and giving us your time today. So welcome. Thank you, Amy Julia. It's great to get to talk. Thanks. I just to give our listeners a sense of who you are, I have been reading your work for many years, long before I knew you. I read Culture Making right when it first came out. And I can literally remember walking around Richmond, Virginia, where I first read it and when I lived at the time, thinking about who are the 12 people in my life who can help come around me as I endeavor to become a writer and to communicate these things. So anyway, you have had an influence in me for a long time. I'm pretty sure I've read every other book that you've written and I have listened (laughs) to your podcast. I'm like a fangirl here, Um, in addition to knowing you personally and appreciating your personal counsel over the years. And actually, I'm going to add this because I'm not sure there are many people who can say this. We have even made our children read your most recent book, TechWise wow. Family, before yes. they were allowed to petition <laughs> for a texting account. So we're like a big fan family. So all this is by way of recommending to any listener your books, your podcast, your other writing. And I certainly will put a link to all of that in the show notes. And I just encourage people to go and check it out because of how you have been thoughtfully communicating about faith and culture for a very long time. But there's one book in particular that I've asked you to be here today to talk about, and it's called Strong and Weak. I have it right here, so I'm going to read the subtitle, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk, and True Flourishing. And I loved this book so much. Hmm. Peter and I talked about it so much. It's it's a wonderful book, too, just because it's really short and accessible. And it really <laughs> influenced me in writing White Picket Fences. I referred to it a lot, even though it doesn't show up by name in the book, hmm. uh, because I think it relates to disability, education, justice, privilege, and the idea that we might participate in healing our social divisions. So I wanted to start today just by asking you to tell listeners a little bit about Strong and Weak, both in terms of how you decided to write the book and the basic premise behind it, if you could just explore and explain that a bit. Yes, of course. I mean, let's start with the basic basic idea. It's super simple. Uh, It's that there are two components to a flourishing life, flourishing family, flourishing community, flourishing business, Mm. flourishing world in a way, and they are authority- and vulnerability. And we often think of these as somehow they seem like uh, might, they might be opposites. Like the more authority you would have, the less vulnerable you would be, the more vulnerable you would be. We, we might think the less authority you have. But I'm really convinced that they're meant to go together, that mm-hmm. they can go together, that there's this kind of paradox that when they go together, those are the best times of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, if, you, if we talked with, I think with almost anyone and said, what was the moment when you felt, have felt most fully alive? If something mm-hmm. came to mind, I think it has a component of authority, which um, in the book I define as capacity for meaningful action. So I'm not just talking about having a, a position of power or a title or a job. It's any setting in which you can act and it matters, you could say. It makes mm-hmm. a difference, meaningful action. And then 
in that same peak experience, uh, these best moments of our lives would be vulnerability, which I define as exposure to meaningful risk, Mm. that there's some element of there really is something that could go wrong, that could be lost. And it's when you have authority and vulnerability together that you have a flourishing life and, and world. And the book uh, came out of my previous book, which is a, uh, a much longer book that very that many fewer people have read. I read it. <laughs> I know you read it. Um, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, which is, which is kind of a deep, uh, my attempt to go as deep as I could in the topic of power and how to think about it. And, and that book, I'm, I, I actually honestly feel like it's my, my, I don't know if I'd say my best book, my, my most important book, the book that I care the most about, mm. but it is actually my least read book because it's a topic that's uncomfortable for people, mm-hmm. power, and it's, it's long. And so after, after it had been out a little while, my editor emailed me and he, and he said, uh, do you have any, anything that you kind of left on the cutting room floor or anything that's like any you know, could you just write a short book? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, well, you know, there's this idea in playing God about authority and vulnerability, because I do talk about it in that book. But I had started speaking on this topic, and I had started putting it in graphical form or visual form Mm -hmm. as a two by two, like the the one thing they teach you in business school, right, is, you know, the two by two where you always want to be up and to the right, right, <laughs> high on two dimensions at once. Mm. So when you do that with authority and vulnerability, you end up with this kind of map where the upper right corner, high authority, high vulnerability is is flourishing. But then there are these three other corners. And I have to say, I was doing all this speaking about the topic of power and all the themes of the book. And this two by two just was connecting with other people and with me. Like every time I taught it, Mm -hmm. I would see something new in it. And I was feeling this huge regret that I hadn't figured it out for that book because I actually think that book would have done way better if it had had a picture or two in it. Um, So I said, oh, I know exactly the thing. So Strong and Weak uh, came out of that. And, and, And many more people have read it. I think it's actually much more helpful to many more people. And honestly, Amy Julia, you've read it in one form, or you've read the form that it got into print. But I keep teaching this. We actually use this as a core element of our training for entrepreneurs at Mm. Praxis, where I work now. And it's developed even beyond what I saw at the time I finished that book in 2017. So of all the things I've ever written or created like this is the one that feels more most like I discovered something not invented and and that it just keeps giving and unfolding so I think that's why when I mentioned that like I talked about this in my own life Peter and I've talked about it in terms of what it means to lead a team we've talked about it in terms of our family and again that simplicity of this four by four it helps you just to be like oh yeah I remember I can go back to that really easily so can you map out the four quadrants for people just so that they can try to create a visual map and of course we'll put an image in the show notes but for the lack of the visual right now (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It's hard to do on podcasts, I've found. But uh, Y axis, the vertical axis is authority. That's your capacity for meaningful action. It can be high or low in a given situation. Uh, I mean, just to think right now, you and I both, in a way, we've created this environment where we both have capacity for meaningful action, right? Like you have a lot because you've prepared, you've thought through the questions, you're the host, Mm -hmm. but you're also making space for me to have it. So this would be a high authority situation, maybe. We'd plot in our little at least in certain ways. And then the x-axis, the vertical, is vulnerability. So how much is at risk? And I would actually be interested to ask, like, how vulnerable is it? I would I would say I always feel vulnerable during these kinds of interviews because we you, you sent me a, a brief kind of outline, but I don't know what kind of follow-up questions you're going to ask. I don't know how articulate I could be. I, you know, I'm yeah. aware of a lot of risk as I come into a conversation like this, and probably you feel that too. Absolutely. So, so um up and to the right, high on both, we'll call flourishing. And then uh, if you go down, you and now you're in the lower right, you are high vulnerability, but low authority. This would be a situation where a lot is at risk, but you really can't do anything. You're Maybe you're immobilized in certain ways, prevented from having capacity mm-hmm. for meaningful action. And I think the best name for that cor- corner, at least initially, is suffering. Mm-hmm. Um this is, by the way, the one corner that 
the other three, I'm not sure every human being experiences, but I'm pretty sure every mm. single human being has been in a situation of vulnerability without authority. Uh, at least if you've been through middle school, <laughs> uh, you've, <laughs> you've experienced it. Um, so then you go over to the left from there, and now you're in the lower left, which is the, in some ways the, some ways the most interesting corner. The uh, low vulnerability, low authority. So you don't have much capacity to act, but there's also not much risk, or at least very little sense of risk. And uh, I would initially call this corner, and this is a little different from even how it is in the book. Mm. I think the best initial name for this is safety. Mm. So safety is an environment where I don't have to act and I don't have to risk. Yeah. And in, incidentally, we can go more into this if you want, but I would actually say this is where every healthy human life is meant to begin. And, mm -hmm. and those of us who are parents, we devote so much yeah. attention in the early days, weeks, months, years of our children's lives, as to whatever extent we can, to creating an environment where actually they're they're limited in their authority. We don't just give them don't give them the keys of the car when they're three years old, right? And but we also do all these things to limit their exposure to risk if we can. Right. Every parent would want to do that yeah. for their child. Not every parent can't. Not every parent can, but every parent would. And then finally, just to finish out the map, we go up up from there. And now you have high authority, yeah. but low vulnerability. So here's the other thing I've realized since the book. It's so frustrating because the book has another name for it, which we could talk about if you want. But I've realized the real name for that corner, that upper left corner, is control. Mm. <laughs> control is when I have all the authority I want, but I don't have any risk. That's like the, it's almost the definition of control is I can act, I can make things happen, but I know exactly how it's going to turn out. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of, I think, the dream of human life. The, the dream is I wish I could be in a situation where I didn't have to risk, but I could get everything done I want to get done. We're looking for control in a way. You know, and it's so interesting. This is taking me a little bit off of our <laughs> planned conversation already. Um, so I'll take that risk and just say, <laughs> exactly. I have been thinking now for a long time about um, the phrase that uh, Christians use a lot about God to say that God is in control. In control. And yes. about how yes. that interacts with the biblical idea that God is love. Because yes. and the idea of biblical like sovereignty. And I think yes. that's really related to what you're saying. Yes. Because I do think it can and there's actually some measure of I think ultimately false comfort in God being in a place of control with no vulnerability. Um yes. and of saying, you know what, he's got it and I even if I don't understand it, it's all gonna work out in this almost manipulative or puppeteer mm. way. Yeah. Whereas the, that place of flourishing, which I think is certainly where God intends for us to be, but even that sense of, I mean, if God came to, hum to humanity in the person of Jesus and died on a cross, well, then vulnerability is like really a part of the being of God. And so yes. I'm, I'm just really, and again, I don't in any way want to say God doesn't know what's going to happen or God right. is That's kind right. of powerless or something like that. But I think it's a lot more nuanced and subtle than the way that phrase God is in control goes out. And so that anyway, when you just mentioned changing that quadrant or thinking about that quadrant yep. of control, that's what came to totally. mind. Totally. Yeah, totally. And I think uh, I mean, I, I certainly myself believe in the sovereignty of God. You, you can't really be a uh, you could say a small Orthodox Christian without believing that in some sense. And it is also true that you know, when we talk about risk, we're talking about unknowns related to time. Mm. That is, you know, it's it's often we're imagining the future. And is this going to work out for me? Or is it not going to work out? Am I going to win? Am I going to lose? And that it involves the unknowability of future for us. And we don't believe because God is not bound to time the way we human beings are. Right. Um, we don't believe that God experiences that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, God, God is not confused or uncertain about what's going to happen. But if you think about risk as the possibility of loss, mm. <laughs> to me, that's the very act of creation. Uh, at least, at least, well, first of all, so, uh, <laughs> two things. First, God actually, it turns out, never created a mechanical universe, even if, even before you have human beings in it, 
you know, the Newtonian idea of the universe was a world that worked like a clock mm -hmm. and, and this, you know, so you th or a watch, the divine, the great watchmaker, yeah. right? This very complex system, but it's all mechanical. It all proceeds by rules. You can, you could in principle chart out all the mathematics of it. Well, we now know for the last hundred years because of quantum mechanics that the, the world actually doesn't operate like a mechanism in that mm. way. Um, those Newtonian laws apply at very large scales, but they don't apply at the smallest scale. Mm. And then you have a bunch of other complexities <laughs> that my wife is a physicist actually understands and I just draft along. Um, but then you have the, so the world was built with a kind of possibility and probability at its very heart. That's mm -hmm. what quantum mechanics tells us. Mm. And then you introduce into this human beings, whose brains, by the way, are the most complex thing in the universe, whose brains actually function on quantum mechanical mm. levels, uh, and, and who are given, even if we didn't know how our brains function or long before we knew that, we know that God gave us a kind of freedom, right? Yeah. And the man and the woman in the biblical story are put in the garden, and God absents himself, you could say. God steps away and creates this space for them to be free. Well, mm -hmm. at that moment, God is opening himself up to the possibility of loss. So, and, oh, and then uh, vulnerable ultimately comes from a Latin word, vulnus, which means wound, and it means woundable. And so is God woundable? Well, we have a definitive answer as Christians. Yeah. God is not only woundable, God is wounded. And within all of that too is the sense of God's humility that that's not only yeah. something we can see in Jesus, which again is yes. very evident in Jesus's life, as well as in our, you know, New Testament understanding of the person like Jesus Christ, um, not just the person of Jesus, but Christ in terms of what he chooses to do in an eternal sense. But then yeah. I think that sense of the act of humility in creation, the act of humility, even in scripture, um, in kind yeah. of entrusting humans yeah. with so right. much of the work of wow. what God wow. is doing. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, yes. we're on the same page about all of this, I think, <laughs> but it's um, really cool to have some other ways to think about that. And I'm one of the quotations, this is from, um, well, on page 45 of Strong and Weak, you talk about that we reflect the image of God in our authority over creation and in our vulnerability in the midst of creation, which I think just kind of echoes what right. you were just describing. That's right. And That's I'm right. wondering if you can give a little bit of just a vision for human flourishing. Like what are the necessary conditions for flourishing? Can you, are there examples of flourishing? Hmm. Why don't we live into that? When do we live into that? You know, kind of any of those directions. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so uh, maybe we can initially just think about how the Bible shows the first human couple. They're in a garden, which is, um, it's like a human scale environment where, where human beings can make a difference. So if you put human beings in total wilderness, uh, that actually, how much authority do we really have in mm -hmm. the wilderness? You know, I mean, there's a place for going to the wilderness and realizing I am very small and I can't do anything to this mountain or this ocean or whatever. Right. But God actually prepares an environment that's the right scale for them to exercise authority. So th that's kind of interesting. But then it's, but, and, and in a way, they start out in that safety corner, right? Because it's fairly insulated mm -hmm. aside from the presence of serpents, apparently. But, but then the divine command is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So they're not meant to stay in this safe environment. They're actually meant to gradually, mm -hmm. I would say, garden the world. That is, move out into all the different biomes, as we call them, all the different ecosystems. Uh, and in each one respond, ideally, if they were fully bearing the image of God, with, with deep attention to the possibilities of that place, create culture in that place. You'd end up with all the multiplicity of human cultures naturally this way because every human culture responds to its environment. So the Scandinavians come up with, is it called Hygge? The like yeah. very cozy, right? Yeah. Well, cozy is not really what you need in like the Polynesian islands, you know? So you would end up with cultural diversity and that would all be humans in a way exercising their authority over the world. But of course, that would also involve the vulnerability of leaving that, mm. that safe environment and moving out. So it was built in from the very beginning that we were meant to, to move out beyond where we were. So you asked, you know, what does flourishing look like? I think it looks like when you move out beyond the safety that was your initial condition, if you were fortunate and mm -hmm. if your parents were able to provide that mm -hmm. environment. And you move kind of to the edge of 
of possibility of discovery. And this can happen in some, you know, now my wife can do this at the mic, do it with a microscope in a sense, like uh, she can stay in one place, but go deeper and deeper down to the smallest, uh, Mm. coldest, (laughs) shortest things in the world and examine them as a human being and discover that there's possibility there that's waiting for human beings to describe it and then create in response to Mm. it. All of this involves risk. um, And you don't know what you're going to find at that edge. So, um, Anytime we do that. So, I mean, another very obvious thing, and and it's one of the things that I've most loved about your writing Mm. is parenting. Uh, You know, our children especially, of course, see the authority that we have as parents when Mm. they're small in particular. But but the moment that child is born and before even, uh, it's so vulnerable. And it's just both at the same time. Like I, I get to shape the world of my children, especially in their early years with unmatched authority. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is terrifying in a way, but I'm also exposed to the possibility of loss like no other relationship I can think of. Uh, Even, even marriage in some ways, Mm -hmm. I think it doesn't have quite the same quality of just uh, of total authority and total like, oh my goodness, my heart leaves the house every time my daughter goes off to kindergarten, yeah. you know? So yeah, all the all the best moments. Right, That's, are in those It's places. those two things together. All right, so this is a bit of a pivot, but it's also in relation to this idea of authority and vulnerability. We are speaking yeah. right now, we're recording this conversation on November 2nd. It will yeah. come out uh, into the world on November 3rd, which is to say the day of the United States presidential election. And I am thinking about the political realm when it comes yeah. to applying these yeah. ideas. And uh, and there is a part of Strong and Weak where you're speaking specifically about and writing specifically about leaders. So are we yeah. looking for leaders who have authority and vulnerability? Like, is that kind of a way to, I don't know, and I, I don't know if evaluate's the right word, because one of the things you also talk about is like the significance of sometimes having to protect that vulnerability from people from seeing it. So I'm curious, how, how do yeah. we apply how do we apply this to the political realm? How do we think about these things when we're looking at politics? So a couple thoughts. <laughs> One is, I think, I think it's understandable and it's also mysterious, given that we were, we were made for vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we have this, very deep instinct that says I'd actually rather not have that. And I don't think that's necessary. (laughs) Uh, So the serpent picks up on this Mm -hmm. in the garden and, and the serpent says, uh, you know, why have a tree for the tree? And the woman says, well, because we'll die. So she has a sense of vulnerability with respect to the tree. She has a sense of vulnerability with respect to her maker in a way. And the serpent Mm -hmm. says, Oh no, no, no. God knows if you eat that, you're going to know good and evil. So you're going to have way more authority than you currently have. You'll be like God, the servant says, and you shall not surely die. In other words, you're not as dependent. You're not as mortal. You're not as frail as God is trying to tell you. And the woman and the man take that bargain. They're like, oh, that sounds good. Be like God, authority, (laughs) high authority. But we won't actually die. In other words, lower vulnerability. Right. So that's a preface to say that in every human individual and in every human system, there is a, for some reason, uh, I'm not sure I totally know why, a flight from vulnerability. There's a Mm -hmm. desire to be told um, by someone whispering in our ear or shouting, (laughs) I suppose, uh, you can be in control or you can be safe. You can kind of choose your corner. Do you want to go high authority? Then you can be in control. Or do you just want to be safe? Like, uh, and, and when you look at what politicians promise, <laughs> it's very rare that they promise vulnerability. It's very rare that they say, you know what, for us to flourish as a nation is going to take risk. It's much more common yeah. for them directly or indirectly to say, vote for me and we'll be in control and in charge or vote for me and you'll be safe and protected. Mm. And there are there are versions of this on both sides of, of any given partisan line. 
because this the this promise can play out in different ways. But but the other thing you have to introduce into this is that politics is ultimately about force. <laughs> it's yeah. about uh, I mean, this is Max Weber, the sociologist, said the the one thing the the state, so called the nation state, claims for itself is a legitimate monopoly on force or a monopoly on legitimate force. The state is the one entity in our society that can force you to do something you don't want to do. And when you think about where do you get control from, it's from the ability to make things happen, not invite things to happen (laughs) or not wish for things to happen. You get control when you can make things happen. And that always or very often involves force. So what's at stake in almost every election, there are, there, are mo- there are moments when we have leaders in American life and in other nations who actually do that up into the right thing. So Lincoln's second inaugural address, he is in the midst of prosecuting a, a terrible war, a war that he and many people felt was necessary, that I would say was almost certainly necessary. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, he gives the second inaugural address in which he, he disavows any claim that God is on one side or the other. He says the Almighty has his own purposes. They're very mysterious. And honestly, we are all under judgment. If if the judgment extends that that a drop is drawn for the sword from every drop that's been drawn for the lash, we would still say the judgments of the Lord are just. He refuses to say, uh, you know, vote for me and our side will be in charge and that'll be good. Even mm-hmm. though he believes the civil war is necessary. Right. John F. Kennedy at Rice University, in, I forget the exact year, the sort of the Sputnik year, gives this famous uh, uh, speech where he launches the, the uh, mission to the moon. Mm-hmm. And, and the kind of most famous line in the speech is, we choose to do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Uh, and here again, you have someone saying, we're going to take this massive risk, huge financial investment, huge, like technical challenge. We don't know if we can do it. We're going to send real human beings to this satellite of our planet. And he's like, we're going to do it because it's hard to me that is. And, and so you notice I've got a Republican and a Democrat, Abraham right. Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. <laughs> okay. Both sides can do this, but yeah. it's so rare. Right. And right. what's much more common we could leave to listeners to fill in the details, or if you want to make me fill it in, I can. But right, right, right. most of our leaders, we actually want them to play out for us authority without vulnerability. Yeah. And um, I think it's clear that happens in presidential elections as well as at many other levels of politics. Yeah, I, I actually don't think we need to fill in any beyond <laughs> that. I think that's really helpful, though, as a framework for thinking about what's going on right now. But then my next question is, so if we're talking about human flourishing and a nation, a society flourishing, how much do like how much does a national election matter? Um, like wh- what mm. I mean, obviously, we can look for those leaders who are unusual in that ability right. to articulate a desire for risk. But even in the examples you gave, they weren't campaigning on risk, right? They were like yes. already in their Interesting. positions. Interesting. And doing, I mean, I don't know what they were campaigning on, but... Um, but I'm also thinking about one of the things I do think national politics really matter. I've yeah. also been convicted in recent years of my knowledge on the national level and lack of knowledge on the local level. Right. Where and I wonder how much that same dynamic plays out or not when it becomes more local, where there mm-hmm. is more of a sense of like, because mm-hmm. um, what I was thinking about when you were talking about that removal why it is that we as humans don't want to be vulnerable. I was thinking about the ways in which vulnerability and love and relationships are like tied up in each other, where the only way I think to be giving and receiving love with, whether that's with God or with another person, or even with some aspect of the creation is through some measure of vulnerability. So yes, able to be wounded, but also like that's that opening and that, position of like humility and of receptivity and i so i do wonder where it's like the national like the farther you get away from those relationships the more likely you are to get away from that vulnerability yeah then like the more you bring the relationships and again local level that's you know it's like i know literally like actually know the people who are running um for both sides quote unquote of 
the aisle in terms of being the first electman in my town and, and yes. first electman or first elect woman in my town, right? Yes, um, yes. And so I think there's just some vulnerability that comes simply yes. in those relationships. And I wonder whether that actually, those are the places where when it comes to politics, there's more likelihood for that flourishing. I don't know. That's just what comes to mind. Oh, I, th- oh, I think that's so right. And I mean, the you know, one of the macro stories of American political life is the increasing, and there's all these inputs to it. It was going on, it's been going on for at least two generations now, is the constant, the increasing concentration of power, actual effective power, uh, first of all, at the federal level and instead of the local level. Mm-hmm. And, and then also in the executive branch of government as opposed to the legislative branch. Um, right. And when you think about it, the the world the framers of our constitution designed um first of all was local in ways we can't even imagine the federal government had so little power mm-hmm. uh, you know the, uh, it, which is reflected by the way in, in uh, something i think doris Kearns goodwin uh, observes this that before the civil war the united states was a plural noun the united states are such and such mm. and it wasn't until after the civil war which did establish kind of a new level of federal power that it becomes the united states is it became a singular thing i did not know that it was also always the states that happened to have united under this constitution right so power was very local and we have this federal system that that one of its great strengths arguably is is the devolving of power to states and we're seeing that even like in coronavirus response right the, the actually the cdc actually has no power. Uh, the state governments are the ones that tell you, mm-hmm. are you under quarantine or not? You know, it's this, it's the governor of your state who can, who can tell you that, not the president of the mm-hmm. United States, let alone the CDC. Um, so, so first they had this incredible local uh, con- conception of power with only specific powers enumerated for the federal government. Most powers were at the state mm-hmm. level, at that relational level, right. more relational. Um, second, uh, they had three branches. <laughs> and it's interesting how now when we say a national election, I know what what I think and what every listener immediately thinks is the president, right. the president line. Well, you're also going to be voting uh, for sure for your House of Representatives, probably for a member of the Senate mm-hmm. from your state. But we have sidelined those legislative roles. And, and now so much is concentrated right. for and this is real, like there's real concentration of power in the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, and and think about how much more vulnerable legislation is than executive order. Right. So legislation involve it does involve relationship. It involves compromise. It involves debate where you get mm-hmm. on the floor of the Senate or the House and you make your case, but then someone else gets to stand up after you. But when the president issues an executive order, it's it's done. If it's within the scope of his powers or her powers, it's done. And uh, I think that's actually part of why we become fixated on the president. Uh, because we want that person in control. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating to think about just the um, possibility for flourishing when it comes to legislation, (laughs) which is essentially what you just said, but I agree. Um, And I think it's really important for us to recognize as much as who is president does matter, there's also, there's so many other ways in which um, we can be approaching this question of what does it mean for our nation to flourish? Yes, Yes, yes. All right. So I want to move to the topic of privilege. Um, And I shared with Mm. you my working definition of privilege ahead of time. And you said I would get to hear yours when we spoke. So I'm just going (laughs) to read my definition for (laughs) listeners who may or may not have heard me say this before. And then I'm going to do so because and here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about that quadrant that you've called safety up until this point. Um, where you've got low authority, low vulnerability. But one of the things you write about in Strong Mm -hmm. and Weak is that there are people who could be flourishing, but who who have that authority, the potential for high authority and high vulnerability, but they choose not to. And they choose to revert to that quadrant of safety, and you call that withdrawal. Withdrawal. And that is like a place where I just feel like I resonate a lot with the potential (laughs) for withdrawal. I mean... I, anyone who's been following me on Instagram knows that I, when I was preparing for this interview last week, um, I put a photo up of myself having take a, taken a run in the rain. Um, oh, wow. It was like 40 yeah. degrees and rainy. And literally, if yeah. I had not read Strong and Weak, I would not have taken that run. But I was like, <laughs> I am preparing for an interview with Andy Couch. I'm going to take the risk. And I'm, gonna I'm run going in the rain. to flourish, damn it. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> and it was great. It was glorious. Um, but it's but just that I am I am one of the people who can like swaddle myself in the bubble wrap and go into that yep. withdrawing stance, right? Like, yep. So, um, but I do think there's a sense of there's both passivity that can come there, but there also can be a sense of helplessness. Like, there's not much. Yeah. I don't. I, there's a there can be a sense of not yeah. having authority. Um, yes. When we're in that place. So all of this gets back to privilege in the sense that um, what I yeah. tend to, how I think of privilege is a set of unearned social advantages that yeah. lead to unjust social divisions. So if we were like huh. really huh. perfect human beings, even if I got something that was unearned and advantaged me, I would just figure out a way to share it. Um, right. So I'm not sure that under right. all circumstances, but under the circumstances of our broken, sinful conditions, A, we don't think that those advantages are unearned. Like we'd like to think <laughs> we earned them. And B, <laughs> yeah, we right. might even not think they're advantages, right? So, but I know as a white educated person who was mm-hmm. born into married parents and affluence and all of this stuff, that I got lots of advantages I didn't earn. Um, right. And that that then led to me uh, in not when I didn't recognize that, and even to some degree, as I do, participating in unjust social division. So that's how I think yes. of privilege. That's great. And yeah. I think that many people of privilege could choose flourishing, right? To be in right. that place of high authority, high vulnerability, right. and instead, myself included, choose withdrawal. Withdrawal. Totally. So I'm going to kind of hand it over so, to you right. to talk a little bit about how you see privilege <laughs> if you want to, but also what's going on in that withdrawal, in that sense of yeah. passivity, yeah. helplessness, all those things. Right, right. So good. Um, I think, of course, what you're naming there with that with that definition is, is very real and very powerful and very important. Um so I'll give you the way I've thought about privilege, um, which is, I actually think is quite congruent with what you're saying. It just puts it in a, a maybe a slightly different context yeah. or maybe a bigger context. So here's how I, I've tended to define privilege. I wrote about this in Playing God. I have a whole chapter on it. Um, uh, just if people want to go yeah. like, read more or if I don't say this clearly right now, um, I, I tend to define it as the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. The Hmm. ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. So privilege are the things that come to me today Mm -hmm. because of some successful exercise of power in the past. Now, I have to unpack that a little bit to get it to connect to your definition, which it does. So... The thing, so a couple things. Well, the, the thing about exercising power is I actually think anytime you exercise power, you end up with risk. So um, now when we think of power, we almost always think of coercion first. We think of making something happen uh, and and that c- definitely can be part of power. But I would also want to include in power very much uh, the act of creation. So coercion is making something mm-hmm. happen using existing stuff. It's mm-hmm. like rearranging stuff in the world the way you want it. Creation is bringing something into being that doesn't exist yet. Mm. That uh, And that's also, I would actually say that's a much deeper form of power mm-hmm. than than making people do things. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so so power can be create, creative, power can be coercive, and then within coercive, there's, there's force, which is neutral, there's coercion, which is against resistance, and there's violence, which is actual violation of others or either even of things, uh, violating their intended purpose to get them to do what you want. So even, mm. co- even coercion is not, um, uh, coercive power is not always just one thing. And... <laughs> Any of those are a risk. So even if you're uh, a lieutenant in the army where you have command and control powers over your, I'm sorry, I don't know the military well, your squadron or whatever the level of unit is, um, you give an order, right? And in the military system, like pretty much that order has to be obeyed. Uh, but in fact, there's al- there's always a risk. Like the people you're giving orders to have guns. They can turn around and say, no way, and they can shoot you, right? Mm-hmm. So even even high coercion situations, there's risk involved in the exercise of power in the moment, mm-hmm. let alone in environments of creative power, um, like writing a book, for example, where you're taking all kinds of risks at every stage of creation, let alone parenting a child. Right. So 
Here's where I'm going with this. In the moment of exercising power, you're always at risk. But you can exercise power in such a way that, that, that the, the act recedes into the past, but the benefits continue. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a book called Strong and Weak. <laughs> uh, it came out in 2017. Right. All the risk is in the rearview mirror for right. me. Like it was risky to write that book. It was a risk for my publisher to write me a check and kill trees and so forth. All that's, you know, four years, three, three or four years behind mm-hmm. us. And today, Amy Julia Becker wants to talk about my book mm-hmm. and, and introduce her audience to me and have a conversation with me. What is that? There, that is privilege. Mm. That's an ongoing benefit of a risk I took years ago. Now, even more, let me just put a finer point on it. That book has done okay, and it did better than the publisher expected. So they gave me an advance on my royalties, right? Um, that has to be paid back by earnings from the book. Well, as it happens, it's sold enough copies that it's, we call it made back its advance. So every October, this just happened three days ago, I get a check from my publisher of money that are my royalties (laughs) in excess of the advance. And I did nothing to earn that. It just appeared in my bank account. (laughs) It's right. And do you know what? For human beings, that's like magic. It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't have to take any risks. I could stay in my basement and that check would still arrive. So this is my question on your definition in terms of the idea of the successful exercise of power. Yes, yes, Because if someone, like it seems as though successful exercise of power can be just or unjust. Yes, it can, it can. Completely, yes, successful just in the sense that you got what you wanted that your action was meaningful right but so like in other words the privilege that you're describing is like a great one and everyone would be like yeah hey you're getting your royalties right like that's i think that's just like terrific um whereas there are other exercises of power that like confer benefits that go forward that are part of what's like tearing us apart right now um in thinking about and trying to wrestle with because they either came from a place of injustice, can perpetuate some measure that's of injustice, right. et cetera. Okay. So yeah, that's um, So yeah, no, ahead. so that's that's like the next step is realizing most of the benefit. So so I'm I'm framing privilege first of all as actually a good uh, in principle a good thing. It's benefits. It's good it's yeah. good thing. Yep. It's good that we're having this conversation today. And and I would very naturally say, it would come naturally to me to say it's a privilege to get to talk to you. Like totally. we would use the word that way. Yep. Meaning it really is a good thing. But it didn't come because I took a huge amount of risk in the present. It comes from risk in the past. Mm-hmm. But most of the benefits we enjoy come from a tangled legacy of past exercises of power, some of which were highly creative and beneficial and and beautiful, and others of which were forceful, coercive, or violent. And this is where privilege gets complex because... um, all right, my grandparents, my, uh, you and I share a heritage in the American South. My m- mom is from Georgia. Mm. Um, my grandparents, I would say, were very, uh, I mean, they had their issues, but uh, they were caring, loving people who were, among other things, very frugal and, uh, and passed on to me a small but real amount of financial wealth that mm-hmm. helped me graduate from college, yep. uh, you know, and that is in large part because they loved me because they loved me in a way more than their own needs. They, they were not people of, of that anyone would have thought of as great wealth, mm. but they just, they allocated their resource in such a way to care for me. So they exercised a kind of power in doing that. And that side of my inheritance from my grandparents is, is a good exercise of power at the same time. They were, as we call it, white Southerners mm-hmm. When my grandmother died, uh, or I guess it was my grandfather died after my grandmother, I was looking through family papers. I found papers from the 19th century with the name of the slave that Mm. my ancestor had owned. Now, my ancestor didn't own a plantation, didn't have hundreds of slaves, but but one of my ancestors owned at least one person Mm. who was enslaved to that ancestor. And that is also an input into the world that made it possible for my parents, my grandparents to save their money while the African-American families who lived literally on the next plot of land had no opportunity to say, accumulate and save that kind of money. 
Now, I just get the money. Right. What do I do with that? Yeah. So one reaction is like total guilt and say, oh, that comes ultimately from an unjust system. Absolutely true. Yeah. But only partially true. Right. The other is to say, I'm not responsible for enslavement back in the 19th century. My grandparents were good, loving people. They were good, honest, middle-class Americans. They saved so their grandpa grandson could go to college. And that's to only focus on the positive right. exercise of power. But in fact, what I've inherited mm. is totally tangled up. And I can't tell you which dollars come from the enslavement and the injustice of the mm -hmm. American South and which come from the incredible discipline and character and love of my grandparents. It, it all comes in a package. And and this is why I actually think it's it's a it's a little misleading to to focus on privilege only as the unjust side. Yeah. Because actually what I'm tempted to do with all of it, wherever it came from, is retreat from risk. So that royalty mm -hmm. that I get, which let's just say for the moment that that came from a totally beneficial exercise of power. I don't actually think that's true. Why did I get to write that book and say other authors who have incredible things to say yep, never yep, got yep. the opportunity? There's actually some unjust systems yep, yep. even in my getting to write Strong and Weak, right? Yep. Um, so, but, but even the part that comes from totally good things for me becomes an invitation to say, uh, like the rich guy in Jesus's parable, uh, he says to his soul, soul, you have plenty of stuff. You have plenty of benefits from your past work as a farmer. Now just build a big barn and settle down, eat, drink, and be merry. Yeah. And God's like, oh, you are a fool uh, <laughs> to think you can withdraw right. from your responsibility to your neighbors, from your responsibility to continue to create in the world. And indeed, at some point, you are going to face the ultimate vulnerability of death and judgment, and you're not ready. And instead, the guy's saying, I'm, I'm set. I've, I've got everything I need. And what privilege does is it gives us the option to head to the left side of the two by two, to either go to control or go to safety. And, and then, because we really want to be there, we will happily erect and perpetuate systems of injustice that keep us there. And that's how it connects to your definition. Because actually, in my desire, even just to keep the good things I've been given, I will gladly participate in systems that allow me to enjoy those things over on the left side of the graph, rather than putting putting my my life and everything I have back at risk in order right. for me and others to flourish. That is so helpful. Um, and I do want to just follow up in something we've talked about before in terms of how easy it is to confuse blessing and privilege. And I think what you just said yeah. helps me even in my thought of that. Um, I write about in White Picket Fences just this sense that for so much of my life, I had said that the fact that my husband got this job under these what seemed to me unusual circumstances was, um, you know, answer to prayer or in various other ways. Mm -hmm. I got into this school. That was an answer to prayer. And it's yeah. like, yeah, and your parents didn't need to have you fill out financial aid forms. Like, so is that really an answer yeah. to prayer or is this a sign of the fact that you have some unearned social advantages? And I, I don't think it's so easy as I should in any way to the example you just gave say, it's one or the other. And yet I do want to just ask, what is, how do you understand blessing yeah. as distinct from privilege? <laughs> and what does that have to do with flourishing? Like how are blessing and flourishing, if, if at all, related to each other? Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's very deep. I'm actually about to try to write on this too. So maybe it's good that you're asking me this question. I think we misunderstand blessing. So, I have a couple thoughts. One is there are two threads in the biblical tradition that that we often are unwilling to read together. And they, they, they both come in what's called the wisdom literature of the Bible. One thread is mostly found in Proverbs. Mm -hmm. And it says, if you're a good person, well, it says if you fear the Lord and therefore act with a kind of integrity and uprightness, then prosperity mm -hmm. will come to you. And there's a lot of this, in, especially in the Hebrew Bible. And then right next to it is another book of wisdom literature, the book of Job, 
which is about someone who is completely righteous and yet for reasons he certainly can't perceive falls into terrible, something terrible happens to him and his friends come and they offer the standard wisdom responses. Well, you must've done something wrong because the, the righteous flourish and the wicked perish. And the whole book of Job is this like beautiful Mm -hmm. poetic refutation of that idea. So that's one thought is I think we, we, we all, every one of us lives with an implicit prosperity gospel, which is if I'm good, which can include, I pray to get into Princeton (laughs) or whatever, that God will hear my prayer. If I'm a good person and I'm really sincerely praying and God will bless me. And the Bible just doesn't actually, in the end, underwrite that yeah. simple of you. Even though it is also true that righteousness is seen by God and is in some way mm-hmm. rewarded. So the other thought I have about blessing, though, is this is what I've been thinking about recently, that it's very interesting that a lot of things that are actually called blessing in the Bible happen at a moment of tremendous vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So maybe the anchor text for blessing in the Bible is, is um, the blessings of the the patriarchs on their, each of their, the next Mm -hmm. generation. So you think about the uh, Jacob, who at that point is known as Israel, who's blesses all the different sons. And well, what's the occasion for this? Well, he's about to die, Mm -hmm. right? So he is, and of course we know uh, when Abraham, oh wait, which son is it? Uh, (laughs) who tricks Isaac's the one who, who gets old and Jacob yeah. and Esau, Jacob comes and kind of gets the blessing when his father is so infirm that he can't mm-hmm. distinguish the, the two sons from each other. Right. There's an incredible vulnerability here. Um, I think we think when God blesses us, it reduces our vulnerability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think actually blessing happens in the midst yeah. of vulnerability and unto mm-hmm. vulnerability. And, and so, oh, 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 another really important blessing text is uh, Jacob and Esau end up with a, you know, surprise, surprise, not the greatest relationship. And Esau gets really rich and powerful and he, they run into yeah. each other basically. Um, and Jacob's like, oh, fill in the blank. Uh, I, I am about to meet my very angry older brother that I stole the blessing from. And so he does this whole manipulative thing of sending all these gifts and sending all of his <laughs> package ahead. But then he's left alone by this river. At at midnight, he meets this man <laughs> who he wrestles with all night and uh, neither one can really win. And he says, I won't let you go until yeah. you bless me. And the, and the blessing is you've been called Jacob, but you're now going to be called Israel, which means the one who contends with God or the one with whom God mm-hmm. contends, <laughs> the one who struggles, the one with whom God struggles. And then the guy just touches him on his hip and now he limps for the rest of his what life. What a blessing. What a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so think about that. Yeah, right. So what was God doing? In getting Peter that job, in getting you that admission, mm-hmm. it is very possible God was acting in right. open up, opening up those opportunities for you. But God, if it was really biblical blessing, God knew that, that God's intention was, at least, that this opened you up to new kinds of risk and mm-hmm. vulnerability. Yeah. And then you have to choose whether to narrate it that way or to narrate it the prosperity gospel way and say, oh, I was a good girl and now I get the good things and yeah. that'll make me safe or yeah. make me in control, whichever right. you prefer today. Instead of, no, I was given this and what is the limp in this mm-hmm. that I met? Like, what's the burden that comes with this? What's the work of reconciliation to be done? Because that's what Jacob has to do next is go meet his brother. And, and he has this kind of amazing reconciliation with his brother. So that for me is a way to not completely disavow the idea that God was acting beneficially to you, blessing you mm-hmm. in those things. But God's plans for that were, it's like when Peter first meets Jesus, right? Jesus is like, hey, go out, set your boat out. Let's try some fish, fishing. And Jesus and Peter's like, uh, Lord, we've been fishing all night. And they take in this huge haul of fish. G- Peter's just had the most prosperity gospel moment of his life, right? The ka-ching, like the slot machine has just delivered maximum number of fish. And Jesus is like, okay, now I'm going to teach you to fish for people. Like right. you, you've seen how much blessing I can give, but actually I have this way deeper thing 
And I'm thinking about also the um, Beatitudes in terms of yeah. what Jesus yes. names as blessed. Yes. And the way uh, Sermon, my pastor recently pointed out how the Beatitudes go from almost like a passive to active in the sense of huh. Um, huh. blessed yeah. are the meek, blessed are those who, right. you know, like this sense of wow. to like those who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted yes. for righteousness and justice, yes. right? Like, yes. And so anyway, I think that's also related to that sense of blessed are the vulnerable as yes. they move into that place of authority. And guess what? Wow. You're going to limp like that. I don't know. Yeah. That just really resonates wow. with me. Um, I have one kind of final question on all of this. And then I want to ask a little bit about what's coming um, ahead for you. But um, on just a very pragmatic level, I'm thinking about people like me who are tempted to withdraw to the left side um, hmm. and have the means to do that. What are ways to challenge ourselves or to accept the invitation, however we want to frame it, to participate in flourishing. Hmm. Like pragmatic steps, you know, a la running in the rain. But um, what, right. what can we yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. I, I always worry about pragmatic steps because, you know, ultimately it's about responding to what God has before you. And it's so different for different people. Mm-hmm. But it's surely, I mean, the ultimate risk, I mean, you, you mentioned this, uh, the, the ultimate risk is love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I guess there's two categories. Uh, who, have, who do I know already I've been given to love and what risk is needed to love them better? Mm. So this involves almost if they're a person with kind of if they're an adult a typical adult it certainly involves conversation right it involves listening it involves asking a question you don't know the answer to or disclosing something you'd rather not disclose um so it's just it's taking the next step towards love with the people you've already been given and you know who who is my neighbor well uh, who is the wounded person that you could pass by? There's none of us insulated enough. None of us have purchased enough bubble wrap mm. that we don't pass by visibly injured people and communities in our in the course of a, a week. I bet even in COVID time, really. Mm-hmm. Because that can be on your street. I live on this beautiful street where every house has had a marriage fail. Mm. Uh, I look out my kitchen window and I think every house I can see has had a marriage fail, maybe one exception. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be the fact that I drive to Interstate 95 from my house and I go through the city of Chester, a post-industrial city that has the highest level of violence in uh, in our state, Mm. Uh, gun violence. Um, You have a neighbor who you don't know yet who you probably need to get to know mm-hmm. <laughs> and include in the circle of love. Mm. I mean, there's lots of other things also running in the rain, you know, and there's so many other things. And, and, and there are all these kind of disciplines that prepare us to be available to that neighbor. But I think it comes down to when I finish this interview, I'm going to go upstairs. My wife and my, my daughter's home from college for a couple of days. They're going to be here. Do I take a risk or do I just withdraw and get my tea and, scuttle back down to the basement and, you know, do do I love or do I withdraw? And then where do I go today? Uh, who do I see today? Who do I include in my circle today? Who's not in my circle mm-hmm. normally? To me, that's that's ultimately what, what it's going to come down to. And then, of course, what is unfolded in response to those risks I take will tell me what my next step is right. for the those people for that community for the systems I'm embedded in and it will become more and more to your point early on that it is also flourishing is risky but not in a why don't you go jump off a cliff type of way um, right. where you're just going to get harmed you're opening yourself right. up to Completely. harm but you're also opening yourself up to wonder and delight and connection and beauty and so totally. I think as we actually like kind of do practice that, and live into it, um, the risk is, uh, to use maybe an overused phrase or something, but worth it. Like, it's like, yes, I... It's meaningful. Yes, it's meaningful. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Um, 
Well, we're coming to the end of our time, and I want to finish just by asking you um, to speak a little bit about the book that you're working on, just to give us a little uh, sense of what you're thinking about. Um, And then I also want to talk about a a book that is coming out in a couple of weeks, but we'll come back to that. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm taking a risk. I'm trying to write a short book about a massive topic, (laughs) which is basically technology, really two massive topics, technology and (laughs) what it is to be a person. Uh, small, small mm-hmm. themes, what it is to be a person, because we've ended up with basically with a very powerful world because of technology and technology, by the way, is the way we ultimately realize this dream of control. It's all built on control, really, uh, because we discovered thing enough about the world to be able to control parts of the world. That's mm-hmm. what technology lets us do. And technology also makes us very safe in certain ways, allows us to withdraw. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've ended up very powerful and very lonely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it, living actually in a very impersonal world, I would say. And I think it's because of what we've wanted technology to do and that we've wanted it to do something that it, that actually the world was never meant to do, which mm-hmm. is give us control and safety. Um, so this is a book about uh, how we got to be so lonely, how we can actually redesign our world mm. for for real people for persons really uh mm-hmm. and for and and incidentally there's a whole chapter on uh <laughs> the difference between being charmed and being blessed mm. and a lot of the book is about how technology promises to let us do magic and magic says you can have what you want just like without any risk or just with a blink of an eye or the uttering of a spell or something and so then the flip side is uh actually building our lives around those who for, for whom magic doesn't work. And so this includes people with disabilities. Mm. This includes the oldest members of our community, the youngest, the people who basically uh, f- uh, like scramble our sense of control mm. are actually the people who teach us how to be persons. Um, so that's I, the next book. What, yeah, I just um, interviewed someone named Sarah Hendren uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. What a body wants or uh, uh, what a body can do. What, what a body can do. Yeah. Um, but she has a quote in uh, her book saying that, um, and not from like a Christian perspective, but saying that disability is fundamental to humanity. Um, yes. And I, and I yes. really, yeah, thinking about that idea, I'm excited uh, certainly for this next book of yours. But also um, I have learned from you that your daughter Amy has a book coming out, which seems right. in some ways related to what you were, are working yeah. on, but also related to your book TechWise Family. Will you just tell yeah. us about that for a sec? Yeah, maybe the number one thing parents have said when they've read the TechWise family is, do you have something my kids could read from a kid's point of view? So a lot of families have done what you've done and read it. With <laughs> made their, kids. their children read it. <laughs> they liked it. I mean, it was, you know, decent. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not. I think there's a whole generation of kids now because this is my best selling book, TechWise family. I think there's this whole generation <laughs> of kids for whom that terrible red book that their parents, this red cover that their parents made them read or made them live by, they're going to resent the name Andy Crouch for the rest of lives but what they've said is you know your book is great (laughs) the parents have said this uh but but it's not written from a kid's point of view is there anything like from a kid's point of view and so amy my daughter uh who is now 20 uh wrote the foreword to the techwise family and it's this beautiful little like three-page hey you want to hear what it was like from a kid's point of view and our friend tish warren who's a writer said to me a couple years ago she said you really should get your daughter to write the follow-up book and we actually did. So That's it's so called cool. My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. And it's mostly by Amy. She wrote it when she was 19. She just turned 20. So it's a teenager's point of view so cool. um, on growing up in a family that did, you know, did some things differently. But she's also had all the normal experiences because we were not anti-tech in the end, you know. So she's she's lived with all these things that her whole cohort generation lives with. And it's a beautiful book about all the ways it can mess us up and all the ways that we can be rescued uh, from it. And uh, then I write little letters to her at the end of each chapter, um, just kind of responding. But it's 80, 90% my daughter's book. And coming out in November, November right? November 17th, okay. you know, My TechWise Life. Awesome. It's a, so it's, it's on its, its way. 
Yeah, it's exciting. Well, I can't wait to read it, see it. I will um, be on the lookout, and I am excited that you guys got to do that together. That's so fun. And my kids yeah. will be <laughs> excited, too, Merrily especially, because she was not forced to read <laughs> TechWise Family, so All she's right. young All enough right. that she'll get to read the teenager version. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, well, Andy, thank you so much. I really personally benefited from this conversation, but I'm sure that listeners will say the same, and especially in a time of so many questions and lots of angst um, to be able to think mm. about what it means to be people who flourish uh, both in and of ourselves, but also on behalf of and kind of for and within uh, other people before and within God's loving care. I'm really grateful yeah. for that today. Wow. Thank you so much for the invitation to talk. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. As a final note, we have a few weeks left this season in this podcast. So if you're a listener, I would love to hear from you. I'm thinking about starting a new season in a few months, and I would love to know what has been valuable to you in the conversations that have been offered so far. You can reach out to me directly. Uh, my email is amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com. You can also find a contact link at amyjuliabecker.com. Or just leave a review on this podcast, wherever you get it. I'll see that. Uh, You could share this podcast online and just tag me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And then I'll see what you have to say about whether we should keep having these conversations. And if so, what really matters to you? What's been valuable, valuable to you in what I have been able to talk with people about? I'm also really grateful to our host, Breaking Ground, and I do want to mention I have an essay with Breaking Ground that I mentioned in the show today. It's an essay about God and love and control and the election. So if you want to hear more about that part of the conversation today, or I guess read more about it, you can find that at breakingground.us. And as always, I have to say thank you to Jake Hansen for doing a masterful job of editing this podcast, and in this case, on very short notice. To Amber Beery, my social media coordinator, who has just handled everything so well. She does more, far more above and beyond I could ever ask for, and I'm so grateful to her. And I will tell you that next week I'm going to be talking with David Bailey, the director of Erebon. He was actually on episode one of this season of the Love is Stronger Than Fear podcast, and we're going to circle back to him after the election and see what's going on and what he's thinking about. Um, And we're going to talk about acting justly and loving mercy. So I hope you'll join us next week. Finally, as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.